Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning be holy and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, grant us understanding from your word that can only come by your Holy Spirit. And may we live lives in light of it, filled with good works and faith for Jesus Christ. Through him we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I want to begin this morning um, with a, a bit of a thought experiment. Imagine, if you will, imagine with me a nation that is ruled by evil men. I know that's hard to, that's hard to imagine, but bear with me, right? Play along. Imagine being ruled by an evil government that persecutes believers and a church who are in bed with this government and consistently use it for their enrichment and the enrichment of the church leaders. In other words, imagine being a first century Jew here in Matthew chapter 3. You and your family are doing the best you can to navigate this world that you live in. You attend church regularly. You do all the sacrifices. Despite the corruption of the leadership around you, and despite the corruption that you see within this church, you love your family, you provide for them the best that you can. You listen to the scriptures being read and taught during the week. You are a faithful Christian. And then one day, a wild-looking preacher appears out of nowhere. His name is John. And he tells everyone that they must confess and repent of their sins. That judgment is coming to the state and to the church. And there isn't much time because the kingdom is actually at hand. It is here. Now the first, first thing you may think or feel is that those evil men in power over you need to repent if anyone has to repent, it has to be them, right? You may feel that it is unfair that you have to confess your sins and turn from your sins. After all, you haven't done anything as, as, as bad or nefarious as those who rule over you. It is always more difficult to reckon with your own sin than someone else's. It's easy to play the victim regarding your own actions than to take responsibility for them. But John's message here in Matthew chapter 3 shows us that those who are truly blameless are those who admit to their sins, who confess them, and then who turn from them. Those are the blameless ones. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And this is part of the message of Advent. If we desire justice for our enemies, we have to first start with our sins. There is a time to point the finger, but only after we've been judged. Only after we've been judged. We hear that famous passage, judge not lest you be judged, right? That doesn't, that doesn't mean you cannot judge things. It means that you must be judged first, or you will be judged according to that standard. That is John's message here. John's message is that the Lord's day comes for us all. You can either die to yourself and be justified on that day, or try to stand before the Lord with your own righteousness. One produces fruit that leads to life. The other produces only judgment and death. Not only was this true in the first century church, but it is true today and every day. We are all faced with this charge. The charge to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our Lord is here. The question is, for every generation... Will you cling to Christ or to your pride? 
John says that the axe is laid at the root of every tree. All the trees, the axe is laid at the root. Those who do not produce fruit will be cut down. Now before we can understand this message, we have to understand who is delivering this message. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer for the really Presbyterian among us, was the last prophet of the Old Testament era. And according to Jesus, he was the greatest of all the prophets in that era. And that's big praise if you think about all the prophets before him, especially Elijah. Elijah who embarrassed all the prophets of of false religions. Elijah who made an axe head float in the water, who ascended to the heavens in a fiery cloud, was not as great as John the baptizer. And the reason is, for whom John preceded. He was the voice crying from the wilderness that Isaiah foretold, and his voice was crying about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And John presented himself as this promised prophet. He clothed himself with camel hair and a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was an odd person, right? If you were to see this person, you would think he was insane. Unless you were a first century Jew. These images mean something. He didn't wear camel hair and a leather belt for nothing. He didn't eat locusts because he liked the taste. He didn't eat honey for nothing. He was playing a part. He was playing a role. And that part was that of Elijah. Luke chapter 1 verse 17 says, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's coming as Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 gives us a hint into into what what this is all about. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Before the judgment of God on Israel, I will send you Elijah. This new Elijah will be clothed in camel hair and strapped with a belt to show Israel something. That the Lord has come to wage war against His enemies. That's typified by the belt. He's girding up. He's preparing for battle. And that he has come to cover the sins of his people. Animal skins, if you remember, cover the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to remind Israel of the covering of Adam, who received animal skins after his sin in the garden. Their sins would be covered by the blood of a new lamb. It would be covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. But John also reminded Israel that our Lord Jesus would come ready for battle. He is a new Joshua, ready to conquer the land. Those who opposed him would be put to shame, and all those who would not turn from their sin would be conquered. Now what of this diet? Why did he eat locusts and wild honey? We get to get up. People would understand this is a new Elijah coming in. But his diet seems weird. His diet of locusts and honey... Locusts were insects of judgments. Remember all the, the plagues of Egypt, right? Especially judgment against the land. The plague of locusts tore up the crops of Egypt and caused no bread to be made. They could not eat. They decimate the crops and food of the land. It is judgment on the people. Honey, however, is the food of glory. 
Israel was promised a new land flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with the glory and goodness of a blessed land, a land that's fruitful, a land that produces much good. And John comes to bring judgment and goodness. It all depends on the response of Israel. And to the vast majority of Israel, this was good news. To the majority of Israel, milk and honey were waiting for them. They were ready to eat and to partake. But judgment was on the horizon. And this judgment was waiting for their oppressors. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come in. Israel was to confess, to, to be ready, and to confess and repent of their sins, but their rulers were not ready. They did not confess. They did not repent. They did not turn from their wickedness. And for these rulers, John came with locusts and not with honey. Now, there's, there's two parties that are mentioned in this passage. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I'm going to mention a third as well. A third that's sort of uh, outside of those two categories, but was common in that time. And that's the, that's the group of the Zealots. And I bring them up in a little bit, you'll see why. But the Pharisees are the conservatives of Israel. They are the conservative elites of Israel. They are invested in the system. The Pharisees were not, uh, you, you didn't sign up to be a Pharisee, right? You were in that spot. You were an elite. You were a conservative elite who loved the law. Or at least pretended to love the law. They were invested in the system of Israel. They preserved the conservative values of Israel, we could think of it. But they only preserved them to preserve their own self-interest. To preserve their status politically and socially. This was the common rebuke that Jesus and John had for the Pharisaical class. They loved those who wished to demolish their own systems and institutions because it means that they can remain in authority. They have a job still. If they have opposition, they have a job. So they're invested in their opposition. They're friends with the Sadducees in the common goal of sharing authority. So you can think of them as maybe conservative politicians today, right? Who remain in power only because they run against the opposition. They need abortion. They need gay marriage. They need all of these bad things in order to keep their pursuits and keep their power. And because of the Pharisaical movement, there arose another class that's not mentioned in this passage, but I think it's worth our attention. Because of the Pharisaical movement, you have these conservatives who are deciding that the institutions of the church are not helping anymore. They're the problem. And so this class is called the Zealots, which we see later in the Gospels. The Zealots. They weren't in it for personal gain necessarily, but would use political power to spark a revolution. They believed that they had to bring the kingdom to earth. And they believed that they did that through violence and the sword. And we can run the risk of having these people today in a very different way. Right? Not, not the sensationalized way in which we hear on the media or in the media. But we do have a trend in our culture of zealotry, especially on the conservative wing. Today it may, may look more like aggressive and, and uh, sinful rhetoric in the public square. Right? Oftentimes this group will lace their rhetoric with hyperbole 
in order to create subgroups willing to take matters into their own hands. They're not willing to do it the way that the church has always done it. They believe that we have failed. So we have to beware of this trap as Christians. There is a zealotry that is possible even for the conservative side. We do not enact change in culture through our own means. Instead, we enact change through humble service to Christ by worshiping faithfully, living obedient lives, and loving one another. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that there are no civil or cultural involvement for the Christian. This does not mean that we can't actually do things with our hands in the political and social realm. What it means is that the basis and foundation for change in our culture does not come through our own efforts. Civic action starts first with the heavenly city, with the church, with Christ, and with holy living in accordance with His law. That is where civic and cultural action truly begins. And when you flip those, when you say that, no, it's first it's my action, first it's my involvement, when you flip those foundations, then you get zealotry. But on the other hand, we have Sadducees. We have the Sadducees, who are more like the liberal academics of today. And I mentioned this before when talking about the Sadducees, but they love to ponder about the intricacies of every Hebrew word in the Scriptures, right? They, they only subscribe to the first five books, but they use them very liberally. They like to debate over the literal reading of Scripture, how the Bible is really about a spiritual truth rather than any flesh and blood reality. They like to spiritualize everything so that nothing actually means what it means at face value. And when you spiritualize everything, you can use everything. They were too smart for their own good. Now John says that all of these groups, specifically the Pharisees and Sadducees, and their subgroups, they are brood of vipers. A brood of vipers. Offspring of snakes. Children of the devil. Deceivers. That is what John is calling them. This is a really harsh claim. They are deceivers. God's judgment is awaiting every man. The axe is laid to the root of every tree. And those trees that do not produce good fruit will be cut down and burned. And he's saying that the Pharisees and Sadducees are those trees with no good fruit. Additionally, he says, The Lord will gather His wheat into the barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Pharisees and Sadducees were oppressing God's people, causing them to stumble. And for this reason, John rightly calls them sons of the devil. They didn't show up to John's baptism to confess and repent. That was not their goal. They came to John's baptism so that they could find out what this movement is. So that they could find out how to control this movement. They want to make much of themselves and they want to use this movement for their own glory. And we see this. We see this already in, in, John's, in John's initial appeal and in, in striking down any argument that they would, they, would, uh, they would lead with. Specifically, their argument that they are born children of Abraham. 
But John points out that they forget that this status is given to those who fear the Lord and not merely those who are genetically associated with Israel. It was all about faith. Hebrews chapter 11 catalogs all of this. The reason why the Lord stuck with Israel was because He covenanted with them. And the reason why Israel was not cut off is because they believed on Him. It was a covenantal relationship, not a blood relationship. God's promises have always been for those who trust in Him, not those born to the family of Israel. Not physically born to the family of Israel. Our God is covenantal. He cares little about blood bonds and more about the bonds of the Spirit when it comes to the church. But the Pharisees boasted in blood bonds. And the Sadducees boasted in the intellect. And our Lord says that both will lead to hell without humble faith in Him. And this brings us to the judgments. John's opening words here in Matthew chapter 3 come from Isaiah chapter 40. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now this passage is talking about the coming judgment of God on Israel and on the world. The voice of John is crying in the wilderness. He's the one saying, make straight the paths. Make way for the King of Kings who will judge the peoples with equity. Judgment is coming. 1 Peter chapter 4 makes this plain. Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with us. It begins with God's people. Before God can judge the world, He judges His people. Israel was God's covenant people and judgment was coming upon them first so that the world might see them as an example and might turn to God and live. And the same happens with the church in the world today. God judges in the same way. God judges His own house first. If we are not righteous, meaning if we do not place our trust and hope in Christ Jesus, how can we expect the world around us to follow Him as well? We cannot. And this macro view of God's judgment should make us reevaluate our own sins. It should cause us to be introspective. How can we expect to influence our culture and society when we are unashamedly sinning in our own camps? How can we expect people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins if we do not do the same? How can we speak against abortion and no-fault divorce if we are committing sexual sins ourselves? How can we speak against unjust wars when, the war against, when we war against our brothers and sisters in the church? We must look at ourselves first and evaluate whether we are following Christ in our dealings with one another. Then we can speak to the world. Clean your own room first. Right? Take the log out of your own eye before... You take the speck out of another. Now this does not mean that we must be perfect before prophetically speaking against evil. By no means. right? That we cannot be perfect. And part of being a Christian is realizing that. right? Those who were received by John were those who understood that they were not perfect. That they do sin. That they need the forgiveness of sin from God. But it must mean that we act like the faithful Israelites in John's day. We must follow their example. 
We must be ready and willing to confess and repent of our own sins despite the hypocrisy of the elites around us. It does not matter what others are doing around you. It does not matter if they are hypocrites and not following the Lord. You are called to a higher calling, a higher living. You are called to humbly submit to Christ and to obey all His ways. And humbly submitting to Him will lead to godly fruit, the fruit of repentance and life. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And in that house, judgment begins with you. Judgment begins with me. John's baptism pointed to this. It pointed to repentance and faith in the coming Lord. And our mission this Advent, in every Advent, is to follow in John's train. Our mission is to look to ourselves, to confess and repent of our sins, to turn away from our evil ways to the way of Christ so that we might live. What does preparation for this coming of the Lord look like? It looks just like that. It looks like confession and repentance, despite what the world admits or does. We cannot look at the world and say, I'm not as bad as them, so I'm all good. That is not how it works. That is not how it works. We all need the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus. And John indeed baptized with water for repentance. That was the, that was the purpose of his bath, baptism. To prepare Israel, to wash them, to bring them into a, a, a new way, in the way of our Lord Jesus. But our Lord, John says, baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Our Lord Jesus comes with honey and locusts, with goodness and judgment. And the question remains, will you be counted among the humble or the proud? Now, I don't say this to cause doubt in your mind about your salvation. It's not what I'm here to do. In fact, the opposite is what I'm here to do. I'm not here to cause you doubt, but to rely on the promises that God has said to you in your baptism. God has declared you righteous in His Son. He has baptized you with His Holy Spirit. You have been baptized with His Holy Spirit. You are a child of God. The question is, will you live like it? Will you honor your baptism and what that promise in your baptism says by confessing your many sins and begin to walk in the ways of Christ? This is the first step toward a culture and a people changing. We cannot change our city, let alone the world, through sheer will. We cannot save it through proper legislation. Those are good things. Those are good things, but that is not how people change. We change the world, or I should say Christ changes the world, through humble submission to Him and faith and service to Him. Our Lord's winnowing fan is in His hand. He is ready to clean His threshing floor. Are you among the wheat or the chaff? You already know the answer to this. The Lord has promised that you are among the wheat. Do you believe Him? If you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and believe on Him, you are promised the wheat. How will you live like it? He calls from the wilderness, from the hard and rough places. 
Will you hear him? Or will you believe like the Pharisees and Sadducees that you have it all together? The axe is laid to the root of every tree. So will you be found like the blessed man of, of, of Psalm 1? Will you be found a fruitful tree planted by rivers of living water and yielding much fruit for the gospel? Or will you be like the fruitless fig tree that will receive the curses of Christ? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says, Therefore, to, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. That is a warning for us all, is it not? They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. So the answer to the world's problems that we all see and we all experience on a daily basis, that we're constantly being fed through media or whatever it may be, all these things to make us anxious. All these things to care about. The problem to all the, or the, the solution to all those problems is not unbelief. It's not zealotry or taking matters into your own hands. And it's not false humility either. It's nothing of the Pharisees, the zealots, or the Sadducees. But it's true, humble faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus. The answer to the world's problems is faith and obedience to the one true king, no matter what that may mean to you. No matter what the world may do to you. You won't receive praise for how brilliant and courageous you are when you stand up for the faith. You won't be lauded for your innovation or your wisdom. Instead, you'll be mocked and you'll be hated. You'll be treated as worthless and naive. You'll be slandered, even by the elites in our own church. Right? That happens. None of that matters. Only Christ. None of that means a thing. Only the kingdom of heaven. The Lord rewards those who love and serve him. So take up your cross. And when you do, that axe of judgment will pass over you. In the eyes of God, you will be a fruitful vine worthy of goodness and glory. Because you will be united to the true vine, our Lord Jesus Christ. So prepare yourselves this Advent season for the coming of the Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.